It would have been interesting, I think, to have known her when she was young. She apparently had an unusually good singing voice. When she was a child, uh, the records are that she belonged to not one but two church choirs in Charlottesville. And then later, when she got married, she left a message to one of the doctors to the extent that they had again joined a local church and she was singing. So I have a feeling she was quite a singer. Or at least enjoyed it. That's the legal historian Paul Lombardo talking about the amateur singer Carrie Buck. We'll hear more from him later in the episode. But first, let's hear about the 1920s Supreme Court case that made this woman famous. She immediately understood that something wasn't right. She'd seen that look before, the deep-set eyes gone dead, the mouth stretched into a sneer, and his bow tie. She'd come to genuinely fear men in bow ties. He called her name, Miss Buck, and then led her into a small, windowless room. He told her to undress, and the rough edges of his voice reminded her of her old neighbors in Charlottesville, the way they sometimes scolded their dog. The room was chilly, but she did as instructed. The hairs on her arms stood up. Charlottesville seemed a lifetime ago, didn't it? But it had only been three years since her foster parents had sent her away to Lynchburg, since she'd been forced to abandon her newborn daughter. And nine months before that, that's when she'd first seen that look, trapped in a different kind of room with a different kind of man. The hairs on her arms had stood up then, too. She changed into a hospital gown, the whole time looking at her feet, hiding whatever she could. Whatever happened from here on out, she knew this much. Her body was not her own. I'm Brendan Wolf, editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we meet Miss Carrie Elizabeth Buck, whose life took a number of twists and turns, most of them tragic, all leading her finally to that horrible windowless room. This was back in 1927. She was born in 1906 in Charlottesville, Virginia. Her father died when she was young, And in 1920, when Carrie was not quite 14, her mother, Emma, was institutionalized. The Commonwealth of Virginia diagnosed Emma Buck as feeble-minded. It was a vague term even then, and served, in the words of one historian, less as a medical finding than a reflection of the examiner's distaste for her sexual behavior. Mrs. Buck had had a child out of wedlock, you see, so the local authority shipped her off to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded in Lynchburg, about 70 miles southwest of Charlottesville. As for Carrie, she had been with a foster family since she was in diapers. Then, in 1923, she too became pregnant. By her own account, this was the result of a rape committed by her foster parents' nephew, Her parents didn't report the assault or go to the police. Instead, they filed commitment papers, which said that she had been showing epileptic and feeble-minded symptoms since she was 10 or 11. They never described what those symptoms were. The papers were clear on one point, though. Carrie had become a financial burden. And oh, by the way, her mother was down in Lynchburg, too, because this sort of thing, it runs in the blood.
If Carrie Buck's foster parents had been looking to clean up their nephew's mess and maybe also save a few dollars, they found an eager ally in science. The word eugenics was coined in 1883 from the Greek roots meaning well-born. The idea was that humans could be bred in similar ways to plants and animals. The American Breeders Association formed in the United States in 1903, and over the next two decades, the pseudoscience took off and flourished. Decades before Watson and Crick, eugenicists pointed to bad genes as causing a whole host of problems. Not medical problems, though. Social ones. Everything from low intelligence, shiftlessness, and alcoholism to promiscuity, prostitution, and other more serious crimes. If someone like Emma Buck had had a child out of wedlock, that it was more likely her daughter would too. Nature, in other words, not nurture. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. wrote a long article for the Atlantic Monthly in which he declared that crime can be shown to run in the blood. And researchers made in-depth studies of family lines, producing books such as Mongrel Virginians, The Wind Tribe, a study of racial mixing in the Blue Ridge, published in 1926. This focus on genes and misbehavior lent scientific credibility to the already widespread assumption that poor people, women, and minorities were inherently inferior. In fact, while there was some pushback against eugenics, a few scientists thought the conclusions outraced the science. It was nevertheless a widely accepted part of the scientific mainstream, which meant that when the man in the bow tie came for Carrie Buck, not a single person tried to protect her. A decade earlier, when the authorities came for his wife and daughter, George Mallory stood up to them. In 1917, he wrote a scathing letter to A.S. Pretty, the superintendent of the Virginia State Colony in Lynchburg. Mallory accused Dr. Pretty of kidnapping his wife, Willie, and their daughter, Nanny, of diagnosing them both as feeble-minded and then sterilizing them without their consent. You ought to be ashamed of yourself of operating on my wife at that age, he wrote. What cause did you have? Please let me know, for there's no law for such treatment. I've found that out. I am a poor man, but was smart enough to find that out. Actually, there was such a law, and when Mr. Mallory sued anyway, the Virginia courts upheld the sterilizations. The court action had another important result, though. It convinced Dr. Pretty and others that a new law was necessary. They wanted to make sure that their sterilizations would be lawsuit-proof. They had looked into the future and seen more Mr. Mallory's, every bit as angry, but this time armed with better lawyers. So they put their heads together and came up with not one, but two sets of laws. The first, passed in 1920, required the state to cover all costs of any lawsuits, and it retroactively legalized all commitments of all inmates at the state's mental institutions. The second, passed in 1924, explicitly authorized sterilizations and set out a series of legal safeguards designed to protect the state from challenges. All they needed now was a test case. This was 1924. As it happens, the same year Carrie Buck arrived in Lynchburg. Dr. Pretty settled on Carrie Buck as his test case. He drafted a sterilization order, 
He asked her state-appointed guardian to appeal. He hired the very lawyer who had drafted the laws to represent the colony. And then, remarkably, he convinced a former member of the colony's board and a supporter of sterilization to defend her. In Buck v. Pretty, the county court heard testimony from a number of people who either didn't know Carrie Buck or who barely knew her. They all attested to her feeble-mindedness. Expert witnesses then explained eugenics. Dr. Joseph S. Desjarnet, who superintended the asylum in Stanton, explained how it ran in families, all the way back to Adam, if you looked carefully enough. He was a little off himself on some things, the doctor said, half-jokingly. The state's case was thorough and damning, and in the end concluded that sterilization was best for Carrie Buck and for Virginia. As for the defense, they called not a single witness. The court ruled for the state, and the case wended its way through the appeals process. Dr. Pretty died, and Dr. John H. Bell took his place. On April 22, 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Buck v. Bell. A few weeks later, the justices delivered their ruling, an 8-to-1 decision in favor of the state. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., himself the son of a eugenics supporter, wrote the opinion. It scolded anyone not willing to make this obvious sacrifice for the public good. And referring to the fact that Emma Buck, her daughter Carrie, and her granddaughter Vivian had all been deemed feeble-minded, Holmes concluded, three generations of imbeciles is enough. The Daily Progress newspaper in Charlottesville called the Holmes opinion a genuine classic. Time magazine described the opponents of eugenics as sentimentalists. And over the next decade alone, almost 28,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized. At the state colony in Lynchburg, meanwhile, on October 19, 1927, Carrie Buck sat in a windowless room. Dr. John Bell, wearing a bow tie and a white lab coat, called her name. Miss Buck. The hair on her arm stood up, but she did as instructed. She undressed and a few minutes later found herself on a surgical table below a skylight that flooded the room. As the doctor placed a wireframe mask over her face, she must have thought of her foster parents and their nephew, of her daughter and the daughter she would never have. Carrie Buck couldn't have known that historians would eventually find her diagnosis as feeble-minded to have been false, that her daughter would make the honor roll at her elementary school in Charlottesville, or that 75 years later, on May 2, 2002, the governor of Virginia would apologize for the shame of eugenics and forced sterilization. All she knew that day, as she drifted slowly and awfully into unconsciousness, was that her body was not her own. Legal sterilizations in Virginia don't end until the 1970s, and the colony where Carrie was sterilized and lived for three years still exists today. It's known as the Central Virginia Training Center, and now it serves a resident population with intellectual disabilities. 
Not even past producer Miranda Bennett wanted to see what this place looks like now. So she went to Lynchburg. What did you notice, Miranda? It's kind of a creepy place. Um, In some ways, its functions haven't changed in the nearly 100 years since Carrie Buck was here. Well, I mean, they don't do surgeries anymore, do they? No, no. I mean, there's no sterilization. And the residents are definitely treated more humanely. Um, But it's still very much an institution. I'm removed from the community. It's up on a hill. It's really remote. And it sort of sits in the countryside, even though it's very close to Lynchburg. Hmm. Um, And the buildings are still named for these famous advocates of eugenics. So you have Pretty Hall, DeJarnet Hall. um, And the building where Carrie was sterilized is still standing. So it hasn't really rejected that history exactly. No. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's like, why didn't they tear down those buildings? Because I would say more than half the buildings that are standing there are unoccupied and unused, including this building where she was sterilized. But actually, up until the 80s, that building was used as an administrative building. And there were offices in there. And there was a skylight, apparently, on the second floor, which was over the operating room. And there were offices right nearby. There are a lot of buildings that just stand there, and they seem like ghosts. It's hard to forget what happened there when the buildings where these sterilizations happened are just standing there still. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, I think it would be hard to be a resident there. If I were a resident, I would be curious about the history and and because these buildings still stand and I would wonder who was pretty, who was DeJarnet. And I think it would be uncomfortable at the least um, to be there as a resident being treated in a place where you know that people were sterilized um, for the very same illnesses, in quotations. These people who are residents there... When Carrie Buck was there, they would have been sterilized. Now we treat them as people with severe needs. Um, but not people who, who, whose existence or potential reproduction poses a, a threat to society. Right. But, and that seems to be a way to excuse sort of everything that happened then. I mean, well, they thought they were doing the best thing for society. Yeah, I mean, they did. That's the thing that's kind of amazing is that eugenics was not like just some 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 stuff that they hid away in the corner. It it was something that the best and the brightest minds of that generation believed wholeheartedly in. That was seen as the latest cutting edge science and morality, too. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like this memorial for... Well, it feels like um, not a memorial that recognizes the wrongs of what happened there, but a memorial that just still stands unexamined almost. Yes, totally uninterpreted. So it's just whatever you, you bring to it. If you bring to it that history, then it's going to reflect back to you those kind of horrors. And if, if you don't bring that history to it, then like, what is this place? Why yeah. Is it here? 
I sort of struggle with how a person, I, yeah, how a person there working there could reconcile their work in the same place that these people were working. Well, and maybe that's why it's uninterpreted, because if you were to interpret it, that would raise questions that would be almost too awkward for you to have, you know, at the place where you go to work every day. Right. And I think, I mean, I I know that it's closing for other reasons, but um, I think the fact that it's slated to close by 2020... It's probably a good thing. Somebody else can deal with um, remembering that history and what does it mean for you know modern medicine and what does it mean for our country. Yeah, well, it's hard to really be able to have any perspective when you're the when you're the person working there, when you're the person going there every day. You're probably not in the best position to really interpret the place or ask the questions or or really make s- total sense of the history. You know. You, you maybe need it to shut down and, and to have <clears throat> find a way to interpret it in some way. And so while you were there, you you spoke to someone who had met Carrie Buck. I did. Yeah. Um, I talked to Paul Lombardo. He's a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law in Atlanta. And he wrote a book that came out in 2008 called Three Generations, No Imbeciles, Eugenics, the Supreme Court and Buck v. Bell. And in the midst of his graduate research on the eugenics movement, he met Carrie Buck. My goal in visiting her, besides just meeting her, was to verify the, the one fact which everyone had uh, um, called into question, which had never really come up during her trial, and that was that her pregnancy was not uh, something that happened because of her voluntary act, but that in fact she had been coerced into having sex and that she had essentially been raped, and I wanted to verify that. She was living in a, uh, a nursing home. It was a state-operated nursing home. So I drove out to Waynesboro and found the place which was called the District Home. It was only a couple days after Christmas, and the decorations were still up. It was a surprise to everyone when when I said that when I met her, she was working on a crossword puzzle. But in fact, that's what they were doing. They, every day, apparently, sat down with the newspaper, and she and her friend would uh, come up with suggestions for what the solution was. So, so her ability to use language was not really an issue. She could, she did, she wrote, she left behind letters. Mm-hmm. She was someone who had lived a very simple life, had worked very hard, um, and she was very committed to her family. Uh, her sister Doris, and she corresponded. Her mother Emma was in the colony two years before Carrie got there. And when Carrie came to the colony, it was really a reunion. So she got to know her mother, the mother who had left her as a child. And from 1928 till 1933, there are a series of letters that talk about her desire to get together with her mother. In August of 1933, she writes Dr. Bell, the man who had sterilized her, and she says, um, I will take the greatest of pleasure in writing you just a few lines to let you hear from me. Um, this leaves me very well and getting along just fine. I am still keeping house. Dr. Bell, I would just mm-hmm. love to take my mother out for this winter, and if nothing happens so I can't, and if you will let her come, I will make preparations for her to come and we'll meet her. 
I do not have but two rooms, but still she is welcome to come and stay with me. We live out in the country. We have a pig and a nice garden and are putting up a lot of things this summer. I have planned on sending her a nice hat, but don't have the money to send it. My husband works regularly, but can't get any money for what he does. It sure is hard to get a hold of down here. Uh, so she wanted she wanted to bring her mother with her in her little house. She never got to do that. Her mother stayed at the colony and died about 10 years later. And I went inside and asked if I could if I could see Miss Dedimore, and her name, of course, was uh, Dedimore at that time. Her husband, Charlie Dedimore, also lived there. Uh, they were both in not very good health, um, as I recall. He couldn't walk at that time, and she was mostly spending her time sitting in a wheelchair. And the point I was trying to get to was to understand what her real abilities were as opposed to the way they had been portrayed when she was on trial uh, by then, you know, 40, 50 years earlier. She was pleasant. She was um, obviously very tired. Uh, she didn't look as if she were sick, but she certainly wasn't uh, uh, terribly, act terribly active. She didn't talk a lot. And I certainly didn't want to um, say something to upset this what appeared to me very nice old lady. Um, but I asked her, um, about her awareness of her role in this famous case, and she said yes, of course she remembered that. She seemed a little bit embarrassed about it, which is not surprising. Um, I did not press her to go into great detail about what had happened to her, but I did ask her to confirm a statement that she had made earlier uh, in other interviews and, and to verify for me that, in fact, um, she was not voluntarily pregnant. Um, she did tell me that she had been assaulted. She did tell me that the, the young man who was involved had been a fellow who uh, promised to marry her. But then he disappeared. Um, it was clear that she felt that she had been poorly treated, and obviously that was the case. I asked him how he deals with studying sterilization and the eugenics movement more broadly after all these years. And he said that part of what motivates him is the resonance he sees in political debates happening today. Um, I think telling these stories, it is about finding out as much as you can and exposing it and trying to understand why it happened and how uh, people like that were victimized and how the same kinds of impulses that led to their victimization years ago are still around us. When times are difficult, or we think times are difficult, we we will find scapegoats and people we can blame things on. And we tend to look down the economic and social food chain, and we blame them for the fact that the economy's bad or that there are too many people who are coming in who are immigrants or that there are people who are we're spending tax money on who somehow we believe don't deserve it. So that impulse, that social impulse to find a scapegoat um, hasn't changed at all. And I think that it reveals to us uh, the groups in society that we have the most contempt for. And that still is people who are different, people whose, whose language is different, whose place of origin is different, whose abilities are different, um, whose skin color is different.
To learn more about Carrie Buck and Buck v. Bell, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. Not Even Past is a member of the Teej.fm podcast network. Find out more at teej.fm. This podcast is produced by Miranda Bennett.